Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hola mi gente, this is Ish. And this is DJ. And this is... Better Let, Let Me, me tell, tell You. Dale. So, listeners, this interview today is uh, is one of our lengthier interviews. Oh, yes. But I think it's absolutely worth it. On um, just a personal note, I totally fanboyed out. We have renowned comic book creator, artist, writer. He's just a really nice guy at the end of the day. Phil Jimenez. You may know his work from working on Wonder Woman, X-Men, Avengers. Um, I mean, he's worked on a truckload of stuff across the comic book spectrum. And we were lucky enough. I mean, he literally I just reached out to him on Instagram and he said, hi, okay, great. Let's have an interview. And I have to say that, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's not a fanboy, I'm not into comic books <laughs> or superheroes. It's the one thing that didn't rub off on you. No, no and you tried. I you did really, try. really try i was totally engaged in this conversation because phil's it's not only his story that's remarkable just his perspective on things and what he's trying to do in his craft with like inclusion especially in today's age is just remarkable and yes his medium is comic books but it's it's a message and a story that can relate to anything but as we learned he's also working on some uh TV projects as well. So, yeah. you know, who's to say Phil Jimenez may soon be a multimedia uh, brand. And you heard you heard him here you first. Got it here first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but even you guys out there, listeners that aren't you know into comic books and and all that, um, as I said, it's about I much was more than that. It's yeah, this is much more than that. You know, take a listen to this interview. It's it's really fascinating, and mm-hmm. Phil is great at you know explaining what he does. And and it was again, it was a great conversation that we had with him. So. Without further ado, we give you our very lengthy but very, very enjoyable conversation with the fantastic comic book creator, Phil Jimenez. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us again. We're here speaking via Skype, actually, as I've mentioned to him, our first Skype interview with the incomparable, multi-talented, mega comic book artist, Phil Jimenez. And thank you for joining us, Phil. 
Thank you very much. I love the idea that I'm incomparable because I don't believe it. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate the compliment. And Phil, I'm not I'm not really into comic books, but I'm like really giddy and happy that you're on our show because yeah. um, you don't have to be a but fan. What you are into is Star Wars. I am into Star Wars, but you don't have to be a fanboy to acknowledge and respect the work that you've done and the things that throughout your career you've, you know, broken new ground in. And, and we're really, really happy to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I was I, I'm always fascinated by the the thank yous from folks like you, because at the end of the day, all you're doing is giving me a forum I wouldn't have had. I'm really appreciative of that, right? Like, I don't see this as, like, I feel like I'm the lucky one at the end of the day because I have, you guys give me a voice that I wouldn't have normally. And I always say that there's so many people with so many uh, stories in which to tell that are far more interesting than mine. Um, and they just don't have access to resources like this. So at the end of the day, I'm the one that's actually really grateful. So thank you. Oh, oh, that was, thank that you. was very nice. Well, you yeah. know what? That That's a good way to start the show. So for our listeners who obviously are familiar with your work, this is a treat. And for those who are not, it's also a treat. So Phil, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, for those our listeners, you know, exactly what, you know, a little bit of your past, you know, who you are and what you do and where you are right now. God, that makes me feel old. I'm looking back <laughs> on a very long history. Uh, so... Yes, my name is Phil Jimenez. Uh, I was born and raised in Southern California in Los Angeles and south of Los Angeles in Long Beach. And growing up there, only child of a single parent with a particular knack for drawing and a real knack for storytelling. I, I was one of those kids that absorbed story in every possible facet from comic books to TV, film, literature, mythology. So it didn't really matter. I was obsessed with story. And when I was in high school, um, some friends saw that I could draw a, a particular set of friends, these twins named Eric and Erica Teasley. They asked me to draw some, uh, copy some images from an X-Men comic they had, which I did. And then I started reading comics and being a fan of long-term serial narratives. Uh, you I hadn't, you hadn't read comics to that point? Sorry to interrupt you, but you hadn't read any comics to that point? I had read on and off. Wonder Woman, because I was a big fan of the Linda Carter TV show. And the comic <laughs> that I read religiously was Marvel Comics Star Wars. Like, I was a Star Wars obsessed child. And so all I wanted in life were Star Wars toys and Star Wars related things. So the first comic book I actually ever read was Marvel Comics Star Wars. That was the first book I read, collected. Mm -hmm. But I had not read superhero comics until my teens. That said, I was a big fan of superhero shows, animation, live action, things like that. Uh, sort of fantastical adventures with superhero people. Like, that was always a draw for me. However, um, I didn't start reading comics until the early 80s. Ultimately, what I did discover, though, is that I had a knack for visual storytelling and decided in high school that I wanted to become uh, a comic book artist. I think mostly because it felt was the only thing I was qualified to do that would differentiate myself from other people. But I was also driven particularly by being a closeted gay kid and, and a mad desire to sort of balance out what I believe my family saw as sort of, not if not necessarily a sin, a negative. So my feeling was if I could move to New York City, become a comic book artist, become famous, get my name in lights, etc., it would balance out on some level their, dis their disapproval of me being gay. Right. Oh, like oh, a redemption. Yeah. <laughs> yes, on, on some level. Uh, like, you know, it was one of those 
weird things like he's gay, but right. So anyway, uh, moved to New York City and uh, attended a school called the School of Visual Arts, a place where I teach now, ironically, and pursued some connections that I had at DC Comics and was hired a couple of years in, after I moved to New York City to write and draw comics, which I've now been doing, I realized, since 1991. I think wow. I got my first gig the summer of 1991, uh, and it was given to me by Neil Posner, who was the then head of talent development at DC Comics. And he actually brought in a whole slew of talent that is now yeah. kind of amazing uh, It's to, to see where and how they've evolved. So you're Imamin Jean Ha, Travis Charest, like it's it's kind of insane thinking about the generation, the the class of which I was a part of. It's interesting. He so, had such an eye for talent. I mean, he could just spot, you know, because again, like you said, it's oh, like a yeah. class of very talented kids that came in. And a class, would, like looking at it academically, what's interesting is we all were highly influenced by other artists. And so what's been beautiful, I think, I think I've been slowest to it, is, but is to watch the other artists evolve into their, like, their own um, sort of unique and I would say sort of accelerated selves. Like they, they certainly move beyond their influences. And it's actually been really beautiful. The nice thing about working in comics, of course, is that uh, it was this weird little sliver of entertainment and that allowed me to do other things as well. So I've worked in movies and TV and I've done package design for toys and shot lots of interviews for movie DVDs. And I've it's, it's just been really, really extraordinary, the sort of gifts of this career you were able and to be a uh, Tobey Maguire's hand double, right, in the first Spider-Man? I was, yeah. So the first <laughs> movie I worked on was 18 years ago. Now I was Tobey Maguire's hand double in Spider-Man. Spider-Man uh, was 18 years ago. Yes. Yeah. What? Uh, it came out. I, I think it was filming like, in 2000. But my memory is that I shot it. I shot my pieces before 9/11. Um, oh, wow. So at least 17 years ago now, uh, and that was also like a really extraordinary gift, like a you know, that I would never have had if I didn't have this career. And yeah, so that's who I am. I mean, I write and draw comics. I dabble in TV and film. I live in New York City. I have a pretty great life. And I mean that in a way that I, I'm just trying to respect the gifts I've been given. Well, that's definitely, I mean, that's, that's admirable and that's very humble of you. And I think it's definitely impressive. I mean, somebody in an industry that, in any industry to be, you know, over 20 years doing what you love, I think is is commendable um, for those listeners who aren't as familiar with your body of work. I mean, you really are most associated at this point with Spider Man, Wonder Woman, and to a degree the X Men. So I think it's a little interesting how you know, as a kid growing up, you watched Linda Carter. You you the twins that you mentioned had you draw some X Men uh, characters, and now you've you've kind of come full circle with that in a, in a sense. It's like you know from humble beginnings, as I say. I, I, um, I, I must... I'm very fortunate. I, I'm so sorry. I was actually thinking about this a lot because. I've been thinking about the ups and downs of my career and the downs of my career tend to be when I'm not working on characters I wanted to work on, which is the really obnoxious thing to say, because what I do is a job. It's, it's not just like, Oh, I only want to draw this or that, but right. I do find that the high points of my career are, as you said, associated with the characters that I loved as a child. And I find that the lower points are points where I was drifting or not really sure what I was doing was when I was not working or attached to those characters. The New 52, for example, is a classic example. Like that whole universe shift yeah. at DC Comics. And for reader, for listeners who don't know what that was, DC Comics relaunched their entire publishing line in 2011 and reimagined the entire line. So everything that I had invested in up until that point was essentially rendered null and void. Mm -hmm. 
And it was a shocking shift in my creative energy and drive. I didn't know what to do or where to, where how to channel my creative energies because what I had loved since I was a child was gone, and uh, it felt like it was never coming back. So it was it was a couple, and that was a state not, not to get super deep, but my my parents died that year, and it was just oh. crazy. Where I don't know if you ever heard the expression, "You never truly become an adult until your parents die." I'm like, oh, I know what that is. So the thing that I love most in the world and that had given me drive and career, which was this comic book universe, was had evaporated and then my parents died. I was like, what am I going to do with my life? What does it all mean? Uh, and it was a very interesting couple of years trying to figure that out. No, I can imagine. I mean, that's a, that's a big shift on anybody. And I think touch on what you're saying. Did you at that point think to do something a little more creator owned as you had in the past? Interesting thing about creator owned books. The reason I got into comic books was to work on Wonder Woman and the X-Men. I could create my own material, but I find that the drive, particularly the past 10 or 15 years for, for creator material, is not simply to have your voice, but to have a springboard towards other media. And that is, I'm not really good at retrofitting. The one creator book I did was something I really wanted to do. I don't think it was good, but it was it was everything that I wanted to touch on and play on. And my agent was so frustrated because he's like, well, we can't sell it. I'm like, well, you just told me to make a Kratom book of something that I wanted to do. And I did. And now you're telling me we can't move it, right? Like, um, Decide. And I did. <laughs> yeah. And so I realized that it, an interesting part of um, Kratom-owned material and the drive to create it has so much to do with what happens to it, right? Like, especially in this post-Walking Dead world we live in. So I have a whole slew of of ideas for creator own books. I'm not as driven to work on them as I am on Wonder Woman because I don't have this sort of nostalgic feel. And also because I would rather do those stories in other media if I was going to do them. So I'm I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that growing up you loved Linda Carter and Wonder Woman, you know, so did we. Um, I think it kind of defined a, a generation of kids. Yeah. Anybody and- who says they don't love that, that aqua diving suit thing sorry you're lying you're lying you know and obviously that tv show has a cult following but what i'm curious you know in your case since you are a professional and and this is what you do for a living how much of you know something like that like the wonder woman series and linda carter and all that how much if any does that influence your image of what wonder woman should be or your actual work oh i i've answered this a million times but it impacts everything literally it's it's a worldview right so the way that actress embodied that character particularly for season is defining to me uh in the way that i perceive wonder woman in the way that i think about heroism the way i think about masculinity and femininity and the way i think about queerness i mean it's sort of i could go on forever but it's hard for me not to think about a multitude of things when I look at the Linda Carter Wonder Woman because it is a product of its time, which is sort of early 1970s. It's a very specific kind of feminism, which I think is really interesting. Wonder Woman herself, I think, before her crisis reboot, was a totally queer character in a way that I'm not sure she is now. But the, the her fabulousness, which, you know, a lot of people joke that so many gay guys love Wonder Woman, and a lot of lesbians I know don't love her. Like, I've, I had a really? really interesting conversation. Where said, oh, my gosh. It's very, very interesting. But it's so wrapped up into concept, our concepts of masculinity, femininity, 
power, strength, um, strength through sex, like all of that sort of stuff. So Wonder Woman for me is an infinitely fascinating character, particularly that incarnation, because it was it's so defining to the way I see the world and the way I see that character, but also because I think she begs very specific questions that are often uncomfortable. The reason I love Wonder Woman conceptually, if not always in execution, is because when she's played at her height, I like as she should, she she asks audiences to grapple with two basic ideas, which is how you feel about sex and gender and how you feel about war. And I am so enthralled by those two topics because I think they consume us generally culturally and historically, and we don't grapple with them, I think, certainly in the United States. So when I look back on that Wonder Woman and Linda Carter in that costume, owning that costume, (laughs) and sort of owning the screen, I find that incredibly powerful and inspirational. Because there's no shame in that character, in her incarnation of that character. It's very very Um, pure. It's it's just sort of like, this is who I am, this is what I wear, and I'm going to defeat this villain, and, you know, give me the next episode. Like, there's with, something... There's with that something said, still, Phil, um, do you do you think that because, as you said, she was so iconic and she owned that costume, and do you think that that had something in part to do with, I feel, why it was so difficult to cast someone for Wonder Woman and you know in the re- well in the latest incarnation of the character yes because i think the general sense of most modern audiences is that the costume is silly and on anyone else it would be right like you would need to find an actress that could wear a costume like that without shame also wonder woman has been militarized so the past 20 or 30 years or so of her character particularly post crisis one of the interesting, sort of a really important shifts of that character and her world was the militarization of her people. They were not a military before the Crisis reboot, but by sort of kind of bronze aging them and, and turning them into, you know, immortal Spartans, as it were, in an attempt to legitimize her, because war legitimizes, right? Like, and again, we could go down a, a long path. I think that the translation of that costume and that character became very, very difficult. I think it became hard for people to take her seriously because they're like, well, how can she fight crime in that? What's really interesting as a quick sidebar is how cosplay, I think, has really affected our perception of costume and legitimacy. When I was at Marvel, Hmm. even 10 years ago, designing costumes, conversations were all about will somebody be able to wear this? Will somebody be able to cosplay this? I'm like, I don't give a shit. Can I curse on the show? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, go, go right <laughs> but, ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, because the costume looks fantastic, right? So, like, I I don't know if someone can cosplay in it. I don't, I don't know if I care. Right. And for However, listeners, cosplay is um, like when you see people at the comic book conventions that are are basically wearing costumes of their favorite heroes, and sometimes they take liberties with that. They don't necessarily do a literal translation, or they'll do a gender swap with with the costumes. Right. But what's interesting is how that has now become a factor in design. So when it comes to Wonder Woman, particularly, um, they had had to come up they had to come up with a version of that costume and an an actress that was saleable. I think also they, they, they move really heavily into her Greekness um, and her Mediterraneanness uh, the past 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. So I think they needed to find an actress who could embody that. Of course, Linda Carter was 
you know, Mexican and Irish like me. So maybe that was another reason I had affinity for her, but she definitely was not a uh, Greek. And so that, that was the literalness, the literal approach that film and TV now demands of their characters, I think made translating Wonder Woman very, very difficult. That said, I'm so thrilled that the time was taken to find Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins um, and, I, and Zack Snyder and his crew have to be commended for spotting Gal and sort of casting her because I, it was like the Wonder Woman this generation needed and, and wanted. And so well, I think at least at least they didn't bumble it. It's sorry. exciting to think that for 30 years, like hence, there's going to be a whole generation of people who have this woman as their Wonder Woman. Well, you mentioned this generation, and I think it was obviously it was a big success. We've seen success with Wonder Woman, with Black Panther, with a lot of more what doesn't fit the mold of the traditional superhero um, movie, at the very least, for the last, I think, 10 years or so. What do you think is the reason that that's happening? You know, I mean, because, again, it kind of was lined up to not... It was a female lead in an action movie, which they say never works, right? Historically, you can't sell it. It's, they're not going to buy action figures, etc. She was in essentially a bathing suit. It was not a star by any means, because Gal Gadot is a star now as a result. You even... And if I could extrapolate to Black Panther, you know, you had Chadwick Boseman, it's a black lead, it's a black action, you know, what do you think is really driving this new wave of, of understanding that, you know what, you don't have to just put the straight, white, blonde guy in the lead, and and it can still be successful if it's done right? I hope it's a wave, as opposed to aberrations. I'm not totally sold yet. Okay. Like, I, I'm really, really hoping that Black Panther sort of paves the way for movies that are almost entirely exclusively like black casts or Hispanic casts. And Wonder Woman, certainly, the, the parts that people love the most, particularly women responded to me the most, were the what parts on Paradise Island, which had no men in them, right? It was just seeing women uh, portrayed in ways they hadn't been portrayed before. I personally think these are zeitgeist movies, and that's very jargony, but I think that it's, I think it's true. I think they tap into a vein. Wonder Woman happened to be come out during that brutal election process or, or like after it. So I think it was a, a tonic in many ways and a reaction to um, Hillary Clinton's loss and not necessarily her loss specifically, but the loss, the idea that we will now, we will not have a female president for years and years and years, most likely. And women are craving to see themselves in heroic positions on film. I mean, the thing that still stuns me about Black Panther is how, black and african it is right like it's just so extraordinary how it's unapologetic unapologetically african like yes yeah 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 it just it blows my mind and so anyway I, i i go on and on and on about it but that also feels like a particular zeitgeist movie and it's a reaction as much as an evolution to a world that still finds black and brown bodies slaughtered in the streets like and dispensed with and as a friend of mine said who i still love this he's like you know this is how black people see themselves like that it's not so unusual to see that kind of film to us because those are our fantasies and i know that but it was like really sort of refreshing to hear that right because for so many people this movie was a revelation for me it was a revelation not because i couldn't imagine that world but because i couldn't imagine hollywood financing a film about that world right like that that was just mind-blowing and then doing it so beautifully and executing it so well i mean that's that's the wonderful thing about black panther and wonder woman is they're really good movies not only are they successful in terms of like tapping the zeitgeist and and pushing forward 
you know, these ideas that people of color and women can earn a bazillion dollars around the globe and be the masters of their own film. I just totally lost my train of thought and it was going to be brilliant. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you get, you get the idea. These things are really, really extraordinary. I, my hope is that, again, these are not aberrations. I don't think they will be. One of the things I was actually interested, I wanted to talk to, I wanted to talk to the two of you about, I was thinking about multicultural casts mm-hmm. and the pluses and the minuses of that in terms of representation, because I mean, I live in New York and yeah. I, I, my family's from Los Angeles. And so I work in Hollywood. So my, my experience is that my friends are a fairly diverse lot. But one of the things I'm really fascinated by when it comes to representation in media is the idea of like entire casts that are, that look alike or come from the same place. Like the thing I thought was beautiful about Black Panther and on some level, Wonder Woman, although not far less so, was Black Panther was about African people, right? Like, right, right. there were a couple of white folks in there, but it was, about, you know. One or two. <laughs> one or two, and that was fine. Yeah. Um, you know, the first half of Wonder Woman, and I, I think it could have been longer, like, there was this period when it's just the ladies on the island, and you're like, oh, that's great, right? Like, Okay, the ladies on I, the island sounds like Wonder Woman fanfic. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> But, but it does make me think a lot about, like, we, we were talking, you and I, about, like, oh, what is it? The new Cuban sitcom. On oh, one day, at a time. one day at a time. One yeah, day at a time. time yeah, right? yeah. And, like, how refreshing it is to see ethnic-specific families uh, or casts that are, what do I want to say? Well, that all share a common trait. And, and, yes. And yes, really, yes. you know, and, and, again, you and I spoke a little bit yesterday before as a preparation for the interview but you know one of the things that you and I talked about and you asked me was like oh you know it's a very Cuban family but the the actors are not Cuban and does that does that take away does that factor is that a you know is that even something you notice and um I know we've had conversations mm-hmm. over here myself and Darian where I mean we don't mind no it's because as long as the content is and the writing is what it should be and it's accurate whoever plays I feel whoever plays that character is just a vehicle playing that right. character. It, as long as they are Hispanic. As long uh, as long as they're Hispanic. But again, I, I think it's content. Because especially with, and, and we've talked about this in, several times on previous shows, Phil's, uh, Phil. Um, we feel that like Hispanic subject matter and Hispanic content, it's very much, you know, one size fits all. You know, I, I feel that... All Hispanics are lumped together in the idiosyncrasies of each, you know, culture, culture of each specific uh, type of Hispanic is generally lumped together. And it's kind of frustrating at times that, you know, it can't be really portrayed the way it is. Yes. Gosh, there's a million directions to go on that. um, I, I think about this a lot, particularly in entertainment, particularly when it comes to portraying again, the specificity of a group. Um, as I mentioned in the pre-interview, Warner Brothers, a couple years ago, we, it's been in development now for two years, bought a show for me about a Mexican family in LA, loosely based on mine, very loosely. Uh, but what's been really extraordinary about it is how Warner Brothers has been totally behind it, like at least my bosses. There, there hasn't been any sort of pushback on any kind of portrayal the cast is large enough where I get to touch on a lot of different aspects of what it's like to be Mexican and American in Los Angeles present day, particularly for young people. 
which I know is different generationally. And so I get to have a lot of different quote unquote types and sort of explore all these different possibilities for identity. But one of the questions I always have, especially when you have limited space and even more limited cast is how specific and how universal do you get with even among that population, right? So for a show about a Cuban family or a show about a Mexican family, you know, East LA Mexican families can be totally different than a West LA Mexican family. And like, what is the responsibility to cover all bases as opposed to certain specific mm. ones that, that kind of create the sort of universal concept? And part of this again remains, while there are more characters obviously than ever before in media, they still hold a particular burden of representation that I think their white counterparts don't. I think that's lessening to some extent, uh, but you would never ask the cast of Friends to represent all whiteness, right? Like, I mean, part of whiteness is yeah. conceptually, you know, yeah. is always represented, but the idea is that they their specificity is, they have different demands. Well, yeah, whereas, it's, like, it, yeah. it's like saying, you know, okay, you can't, if you're writing a program about Hispanics or, or black characters, you know, Nobody there can be dumb. Nobody can be bitchy. Nobody can be, you know, manipulative because for some reason now that person is representative of an entire group of people, you know, and, or, you're, and you're bringing us all say, down, quote unquote. I would and, say even more specifically culturally and ethically, like I'm really fascinated by young, young Latinos who don't speak Spanish, right? Like, like, you know, they just don't practice it or they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't even occur to them or that, that sort of divide, I find class divide among uh, young Hispanics really, really interesting, right? Which sort of mirrors, I think, that sort of class divide between other ethnic groups as well um, and who, sort of who you're modeling yourself after. Like, that's the sort of stuff I'm actually really, really interested in. Not so much about uh, width and breadth of like, oh, she's, you know, like, yeah, she's a bitch or she, you know, he's an angel, whatever. But like the specifics of ethnicity that have to be manifest in a small cast or often a single character. Because if that character doesn't represent, as you and I talked about, then there can be people say, well, that's not me. Like, I don't, I don't know what that experience is about. No, no single character or family should necessarily bear the burden of that representation. Do you think and that... that yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, that, no, no, that's no, also a, a sign of our times or where we are now nowadays as a society or, or, or a country? Because... You know, I totally agree with what you said that, for example, the cast of Friends, you know, none of them have to justify or be representative of whiteness. But with that said, I feel that today, nowadays, there's such a disconnect, even within, let's say, quote unquote, white people. There's such a disconnect between, let's say, like the elite liberals and like the, you know, middle America working class. Like I feel that they're that now they feel that they are not being represented correctly, you know, when, right. when you see something on television or in movies that, oh, that's not the realistic experience for but all you, white people. But you can't be all things to all people. Right. But, I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And But I, I think that, that that's like, that's part of the complexity, you know, that now everybody, so many other people think that they're being ill represented or not represented correctly. So it's a balance like, well, how do you represent at all or do you or do you do you just start with a or, common truth and then use little nuances along the way or do you that's actually a really interesting question i think we're in this sort of phase now it, it's sort of like what comics have been going through for the past 20 years it's it's course correcting right 
And there's, there's all sorts of bumps on the road as we ask these questions, because so many of us want to see ourselves represented in fictional universes that were never designed to represent us in the first place. And so how do you make that happen? Like, how do you, like, how do you force yourself into a space that didn't necessarily want you and wasn't necessarily made for you, which I think is sort of, I, I think that's always a really, really interesting question. And it does require some forcing, it requires some awkward conversations and definitely some awkward transitions uh, when it comes to, you know, representation until it's normalized and then sort of people just accept it, which I feel like considering the amount of, again, multicultural casts on TV, that seems to be a path that we're going on. Like, I feel like it is less crazy to see a cast full of sort of ethnically and sexually diverse people. I could be wrong, but it feels like it. You, you just said something that I found kind of interesting um, about comics in particular. You said, you know, it's, an, it's a medium that wasn't, quote unquote, necessarily created for, you know, you, the, the other you, right? But I have noticed that, I mean, as far as I can recall from, and I've been reading comics for my, almost my entire 38 years on this planet, there does seem to be a lot of Hispanic presence in terms of the creators that work in the industry. Do you think that on some level that has had some effect however minimal it may be. I mean, yourself, you've got George Perez, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. I mean, there's a lot of Hispanic artists that, that work in the medium and who aren't just working, but are very well known and have a degree of, you know, of, of popularity, shall we say, and, and respect in the industry. This gets into some interesting, I, I'm making huge, huge <laughs> assumptions right now, but like, it's also really interesting about self-identity, right? So mm-hmm. Perez I believe, like, I want to say Bronx. I don't think it was Brooklyn. It was a yeah. Bronx, Puerto Rican. And identified as such and created White Tiger for Marvel, who's a Puerto Rican character. Like, I think his Puerto Ricanness played a fairly large part in his, mm-hmm. in some of those artistic choices. Uh, Cyborg, I think he connected to him because he was a brown character, right? Right. Whereas Garcia Lopez, who I love, the nicest man in comics, I don't think necessarily thinks of himself in terms of identity, right? So he's Argentine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I've never spoken to him about this, but I'd be curious if he thinks of himself as Latino, Hispanic, like what, like what his, how his identity applies to his work. And he's an interesting case because, of course, he created the Style Guides in the 1980s. Yeah. So that, so for the past 30 or 40 years, um, most people who, who look at sort of, you know, the, the kind of pop culture uh, representations of these mm-hmm. DC comic superhero characters are looking at Garcia Lopez drawings, either the originals or modified. Yeah. But when you look at the Justice League and it's 15 white people, except for Martian Manhunter, I don't get the sense that Garcia Lopez was like storming into right. the office demanding representation. Again, he would be an amazing person to talk to. I've never spoken to him about this specifically, but also because I, because he was South American and because he was uh, Argentine and not necessarily like American Latino, like I, I wonder how that plays into perspective. Mm-hmm. I certainly know now ethnicity and background play seem to play a much larger part in creative choices. I think Joe Casada and Axel Alonso no, like work really yeah. hard to to sort of change the face of uh, change the the kind of white face of comics to better represent other kinds of people. Well, um, that that 
goes on to my next question and whether it's like comics or or tv media. and movies as we've been talking media in general um and because you're you know you're you're an insider you're in the industry do you feel that in this day and age with you know the fact that i think it's by 2025 um or is it 2050 about 50 percent of the american u.s population yeah. is going to be um hispanic or of hispanic descent um and certainly there is a, a rise in in the numbers of minorities do you feel that being you know the industry is it an issue of build it and they will come you know put out these movies and people will watch them or is it like it was before like how you said ish that you know we can't put a, a woman we can't put a black man we can't put this person because you know obviously you know wonder woman and black panther showed that at least this year that that's not the case so do you think it's it's an issue that more needs to be done you know and people will go see it or it's still a risk Wow, there are a thousand questions on that. Um, I'd be curious to see your take on it, because even though you say I'm sort of an insider, I definitely feel like I'm of a generation that still perceives entertainment, what I do, in a, in a certain way, through kind of a generational lens. I would be really curious what young younger people think, and particularly their sense of how they are represented and their demands for representation. I think it's quality. <laughs> It comes I think down to quality. quality. I think yes. I think Black Panther, as you guys said, did well because the movie was really good. I think if the movie would have been crap, right. it wouldn't have done well. I, I, I think it comes down to quality. You'd like to think that on some level, but you know what I mean. Some how many great movies are made that nobody goes to see? That's true. And how many bad movies make a billion dollars? That's right. certainly it's, true. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's always about quality. I definitely think it has to do with timing and, and again, uh, demographic shifting. One of the things, I, I want to say it's California, I believe. It's by 2050, one in three people will be Latino of Latino descent, which is really fascinating. So some of this has to be just economic, this understanding that there's this wave of... Um, brown people who have money and are willing to spend it and they don't necessarily always need to see themselves represented but when they see themselves they often will you know will pay money for it so part of my sense is that leadership is shifting that slowly but surely people high up making sort of financial decisions are must see this as a reality and know that there's money to be made I think part of it just comes down to their own interest in it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
and of course, you know, hard learned lessons of what is saleable and what isn't. Um, I was reading before we came here. Uh, I was reading about Latino representation again, immediate. It was mostly TV and film, and it's actually still really small percentage of speaking parts are given to uh, Latinos and Hispanics, which kind of hmm. shocked me. Um, there are a couple of pockets. One Day at a Time is one of them. Islos High just got canceled. Right. But then you got um, Jane the Virgin, uh, Viva, which is on Stars. Right, right, right. So they're, they're definitely like these little pockets. And of course, there are singular characters sprinkled throughout um, like all Superstore these on shows. NBC. <laughs> right. And Modern Family. Right, right. Right, 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 right. But apparently, I was I was stunned that, that there's still a relatively number, small number of speaking roles, and I guess I was stunned because that must say something about what I choose to watch and what I seek out. I was same with the LGBT representation. I was shocked at how like it's still relatively small overall when it feels like it's everywhere to me, and yet apparently it's really not. I just think I seek those things out, and therefore it feels like. I'm inundated with it. Well, let me, now that you brought up LGBT, you know, characters, do you feel, because I certainly feel, with few exceptions, and and I'm talking now about mainstream media, with few exceptions, I I feel that, yes, you do have a will and grace. That's great. Um, And it was brought back and, and it's successful. But do you still feel that, like, gay characters are still, like, the token character and obviously many times still very stereotypical because I, I certainly, in, in, again, in mainstream media, with few exceptions, I certainly feel that that it's still like the token. Like at one time it was like the token black guy. Now it's like right. the token gay guy who's like fabulous and your assistant and all that. And it's like really the same character oh, again. You know? Well, I think this, you know, what's interesting to me about this is talking about what a token is, right? A token is a singular representation of a character who knows no one else like themselves in that show right so if you have a token like lgbt person or person of color they do, they have no life outside of their white or straight cast so one of the things i think is really interesting about about tokens or or, or representation is and this goes back to a, an earlier discussion we were having about like people being around like people a lot of my friends are straight, but a lot of them are gay because we have this sort of shared common denominator. And so I hang out with a lot of gay people. I think I, I don't know about I don't know about you guys. I don't know who your circle of friends are. But it's just me and this guy. I, we hang out with each other all day long. Yeah, yeah, That's it. <laughs> but it's, I'd be I'd be interested to see how like how many of your circle are ethnically like you, are men, are gay, or or whatever. Like sort of represent. We're diverse. But we realize that's not the case for everybody. Well, but, okay, we're diverse to a degree. Because this is something where, you know, you mentioned, it's like, okay, seeing yourself representation. And it's great. It's great to see yourself on screen in a book, in, you know, in a movie or what have you. But growing up, I mean, you and I, Darian, you know, we grew up in South Florida surrounded by Hispanics. So the idea of being a Hispanic doctor, lawyer, business owner, or what have you, it wasn't foreign. Like, I didn't have to see it on TV because there were people around me who were just like me. So, to me, seeing my representation, as I got older, it, it's great and I appreciate it and I understand its importance and, and I like it. But growing up, I didn't feel that that need of, I don't see anybody who looks like me. Oh, I'd walk I, out the door and everybody looked I like me. I moderated a panel uh, it was a, uh, at an LGBT con. It was about people of color. 
And it's very interesting to hear, two, so there were two black gentlemen, and they had this very interesting discussion, and it's one that I have all the time, and I always feel like I come to it from a place of luxury because I have seen myself represented. But one was saying that it was very important to see people like him. He was a, a, a Southern, like, sort of heavy black guy. And he said it was very rare to see people like him in media. And the other one, who's from L.A., was like, I don't need to see me. Like, I don't need to see another black guy. I need to see people who represent my way of thinking, a set of ideals, my hobbies, people who I connect with beyond that. And so they went at it back and forth. And I can easily see both things um, equally. I've often said, because I grew up and because I saw white boys on TV all the time, it never occurred to me that I needed visual representation. And because I was never that much of a romance guy, I was an action adventure fantasy guy, I was never interested in sort of queer representation in terms of relationships, like which I know is a huge demand right now. So many young people are craving queer relationship, romantic relationships, even sexual ones in comics. And I'm just not interested because I'm not particularly interested in any sexual relationships in comics. It's just, not, <laughs> it's just not something I go to. Like I'm not, it's not my thing, which doesn't mean I think it's bad. I'm just not interested. What what drew me to, to comic books and, and serialized narrative and like Star Wars were these sort of fantastical other worlds that I could strive for and like really fueled my imagination. So I always joke, Wonder Woman and the X-Men were as queer to me as any actual gay character. And I've said this joke a million times, please forgive me, but it's like the X, like I always thought, wow, like the X-Men, they live in this crazy mansion in upstate New York and they dress in all this leather and like they go to outer space and like they're fucking beautiful. And I was like, if that's what it means to be queer, then sign me up. Like I'm all for it. Um, and same with Wonder Woman. Especially space travel. Yeah, like I, I get to walk around in like a bathing suit and, you know, like flip my hair and like, okay. That's I'm in. Right. So, I, so for me, one of the things that's really interesting about the specificity of representation is how much of it is visual. Like, I look like that person, mm-hmm. and therefore I identify with that person. How much of it is identity-oriented? Uh, like, I know a lot of trans people are really excited about this sort of rise in trans representation. And how much of it is thematic? Like, I like these characters because they represent a set of ideals that I relate to and connect with, or I'm into this franchise because the worlds represented blow my mind and they inspire my imagination and they make me want to live in a world like that. Um, so these these sorts of questions, I always am really interested in in pondering when it comes to yeah um, yes yeah, again I keep calling specificity of representation but I can't think of a better jargon. L- let me for. ask you this though because I mean it's 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 almost impossible to talk about diversity and representation and different groups of people without at least briefly mentioning today's political climate. Sure. The way things are today with, you know, again, our political climate and the administration, have you from the, you know, from the industry, have you guys have to, have you had to approach things any differently? Is it business as usual? Do you have to think about things that you didn't think about before? Or are you guys, you know, again, is it business as usual as it was prior to 2016? Uh, my only experience was that one editor who said we should make more comics for the for the folks in middle America, i.e. Trump voters. Like, we need to sort of target them. Other than that, I haven't heard a thing. 
in all honesty, I have not seen a, a, a grand change in perspective. What I have seen, of course, are the discussions about the Marvel Comics roster, which came under fire, was it last year? Of course, you know, they basically recast their entire roster in a new kind of multicultural, multi-ethnic way. And there was a lot of pushback over that. And so I think they're trying to figure out how to manage that. But I have not seen it. I haven't heard much of it. Well, I think it's telling that one of the most popular Marvel characters in recent years, the new characters, is actually a young Muslim superhero, female Muslim superhero from New Jersey. That's going to blow the mind of, you know, (laughs) of an alt-right voter. (laughs) You know? And and I think she might show up in the movie. I think I heard that, yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me about that, though, is, of course, you have creators who are pushing... an editorial administration who wants it, but Miss Marvel, as I understand it, I could be wrong. You should triple check this. Part of the reason she became so popular was because of her availability online. A lot of young female readers picked up her stories because you could get them on Comicsology. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting to me about creating material for different kinds of people is getting it to those people in an affordable format. We were talking earlier about if you make it, will they come? I think one of the things, one of the economic factors in tackling diversity in entertainment... Are they coming to get you, Phil? I hear the, the siren getting closer. Oh, yes. <laughs> Welcome to New York. Um, is, I, think it's, I think it's issues of distribution, which gets really dry and disturbing. But, like, for example, comic books, we have a single distributor. It's a monopoly. Yeah. So if a distributor doesn't carry your book, you're in trouble. You know, online has changed that. I don't know if you want to stop. No, it's okay. It's not. It's not that okay. intrusive. It's not that bad. But right. but I think uh, you're but, speaking but, to a general, th- a bigger thing there about the online community just making everything more accessible, and and that's why people are realizing that there is an audience for you know things that are quote unquote a couple of years ago would have been out of the norm. Well, speaking of it, so as I understand it, what's one of the really interesting things to me about Hispanics in the United States is young Hispanics are the first and most reliable early adopters of new mm-hmm. technology and new media, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Like, the fact that these large entertainment companies haven't tapped into that or are are doing so slowly blows my mind because there are young people waiting to sort of consume media and will experiment in all sorts of ways. And yet I'm not sure how well that is being fed. It could be. It's not. Uh, I I, I I do multicultural advertising. It's not. kids are, like, obsessed with YouTube. Like, that's all they watch is shit on YouTube, which I'm, I'm super fascinated by. But... You would think that they would like create channels, like just to get into those little brains of theirs, um, you know, and sort of create lifelong customers, uh, which is so horrible and cynical. But that's kind of what it is. Uh, um, it's true. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, I can't believe how how they have they're not reacting to that. But I think corporate America is always kind of late to the game. I mean, you have early adopters, you have early influencers, but at the end of the day, big companies, it's, it's a huge ship. You know, you can't, you can't write the Titanic, right? You know? Right. You're 100% correct. So, Phil, um, I don't know. Do you, do you want to ask him? Because I, I'm ready to ask him about Star Wars. Go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> Go right ahead. So, you know, the new solo movies out and i didn't see it i haven't seen it either and that's actually what? no that's actually and what you guys I'm, call yourselves fans what i'm 
gonna go with here and i wanted to ask you because i am that guy who will like go to the imax theater and get my ticket and stand in line you know two three hours with a few of my friends and you know consume it on opening night and i've been kind of like meh about solo i'm gonna watch it obviously but i've been kind of like whatever do you th- and and it didn't do well or as well as they expected it to do in the box right. office do you feel that we're going through star wars fatigue or franchise uh, fatigue possibly <laughs> i was just reading sorry i might be mimicking some stuff from think pieces it's okay <laughs> that i've read but uh i was so so one of the amazing things to me about star wars when i was a kid which just dates me because I, I watched all those films when they came out when I was a child is there was nothing like it. That universe was incredible. And George Lucas was so smart that he marketed those toys. Yeah. So the universe became incredibly immersive. And a friend of mine once commented, I believe it, that the appeal of Star Wars is not necessarily the specific characters. It's the, the possibility of the worlds themselves. Like, like the people that are into bantha biology or sort of droid specifics or super star destroyers whatever they are it's because of this sort of there was nothing like it for two decades now there's tons of stuff like it right um particularly because a lot of i think modern production designers and concept designers were so impacted by those raf Macquarie designs by star wars designs so everything is sort of borrowing from everything else and because there's so much media and a lot of it's really good and a lot of it's impacted by Star Wars, Star Wars doesn't feel to me as special. Like what's mm-hmm. the folks that still love it tend to be, I find, not always, mind you, uh, folks who were raised on it or the children of folks who were raised on it. Some kids have found it on their own. They love it. Some of my students like they were obsessed with it because they saw it on like TNT, like on a marathon over Christmas when they were four. It feels to me like Star Wars fatigue is setting in because it's not special anymore because there's a lot of stuff to compete with it now and a lot of stuff that's really, really good and a lot of stuff that is just as visually compelling. I hear that one of the great things about Solo is it's a visually beautiful movie. Mm, yeah, that it's like it some cool. of the best Star Wars design ever. And that actually really excites me because one of my big issues, quite frankly, with Last Jedi was not content, but I thought some of the design choices I was like kind of not super excited about. And that's kind of like a, a, a minor critique. So Star Wars fatigue, maybe. I think there's only so much media that we can consume at any one time. I do think staggered films is, and, and the sort of idea that they are special is important. I think people are more and more reticent to see things in movie theaters because it's that's not true. a pleasant experience. I think there's a lot of factors. Um, also, I think folks in the States forget, as I did, that Star Wars was not a thing outside of the United States in the way it was here. And, like, globally, we depend so much now on China to make money back, right? So so for we depend on international success. And I, you know, are a billion Chinese people clamoring to see Solo when they they can see so many other things that look like it? I I don't know. What do you think? Um, Well, for me, it's a little bit more personal. I... (laughs) I am more character driven and to me Darth Vader is the greatest villain of all time and I found that once Darth Vader was out of the storyline 
I became less interested. I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed Rogue One so much because I mean obviously Darth Vader's appearance on the on the in the movie was minimal, but I knew that there was going to be a Darth Vader element in the movie. And I I just for me again obviously I love the franchise, I always will and I'll always go watch it, but to me, that was the for me again. Uh, other people will tell you it's Han Solo. It's it's. So, but what do you think makes Vader so special? And either one of you can answer I, this. Yeah, I, you know, so curious. special like, and, is- and compelling. His story, you know, that he he was a Jedi and he he turned. He went to the dark side. I I think the complexity of the character is what I I loved. You know, and so the, I'm going to challenge. I'm going to challenge you really quickly. Is he all that complex? I think he was. Or is he simple? Like, I think, I, I would actually argue the opposite. Mm. He's a young guy, right? Like, full of himself. He gained quite a bit of power. And then, you know, sort of succumbed to that power, lost the true love of his life and his mentor and turned evil. Like, I it, it's a, I don't think there's a lot of layers to Darth Vader. Maybe there's a, like, I think when they added some regret to him later on. And well, died, yeah, he did, he did regret, I mean... He ultimately saved, you know, his son. Right. But I, I just, uh, I always I'm found him very interesting. But I, I, I wonder if part of Darth Vader's appeal, I, and I actually think this is true with a lot of Star Wars, right? What's really interesting is the general simplicity to it all. And I mean that in the best, I mean that in an economical way. I don't mean that in any sort of uh, derisive way. I it's mean, not complicated like, for the sake of complexity. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not like Westworld pretentious, right? Where you're like, <laughs> oh my god, like what timeline I'm in? Like, you can I feel totally the same way about Westworld. From like a little kid to like you know this this sort of cyborg tormentor. One of the things I thought was really interesting, particularly about Rogue One, was how people cheered at that final sequence with him when he's be- he's being murderous and destructive and horrible, and somehow this validated so many people's investment in him as a villain. I think people, my sense of Star Wars fans and Darth Vader fans, they don't love Anakin Skywalker as portrayed or necessarily his transformation. And so the idea of a return of Darth Vader to this sort of murderous, frightening machine of a villain, I think was very important to that. I think it was a bit of nostalgia in there. It was nostalgic because it was seeing this character that we haven't seen in this form, in this way, Mm -hmm. in a long time. Uh, you know, in, in a Star Wars movie, make a comeback I at least for a, never a moment. Seen him like that. Huh? That was the first. You've never seen him like that. That intense? Yeah, like, probably. You've never seen that. I think people were thrilled because the, that was like that was the Darth Vader they had in their brains that could finally be manifest by visual effects, right? Like because you've never seen Darth Vader that crazy. Yeah. I also think, again, and we could go on this for a while, for me it was a disappointment also going back to um, episode one. I thought Darth Maul was going to be kick-ass. I thought he was going to be, remember he had a double lightsaber, he looked badass, and then he like is done in the first half of the movie. And it's like, really? Like, that's it? (laughs) I feel like that's a Star Wars thing, though, because like Star Wars is full, I mean, Boba Fett is the ultimate example of a character who's far more interesting out of the movies than he is in them, right? Like, the love that Boba Fett gets is crazy to me because it's about what we bring to that character as opposed to what's on screen, I would argue. Um, And yet they're still giving him a movie now. Yeah, I know. And so I I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of 30 to 50-year-old men who cannot wait for this. I'll be curious to see if their fantasies are fulfilled. But I'm actually also, because I'm just generally interested in this with fiction and 
this goes back to identity representation, what we heap on characters. Uh, there's a book, I think it's called How Fiction Works or Why Fiction Works, I don't remember, but there's a wonderful chapter in it about the sort of fallacy of the three-dimensional character. And it argues that no characters are actually three-dimensional. The good ones have enough holes in them that allow you to fill them and sort of kind of fill in the gaps, right? You, you so bring to the table what you want. You bring to the table what you want and you fill it in. And so you so you, you build them out and you elaborate them. I, and I'm certainly guilty of this with Wonder Woman. A lot of my love for that character is interpretive. It's not in the texts. It's what I bring to the text and see... And it's how I see the potential of the text. But you also often. have to do that with characters that what? have such a such a long history. Characters like your Wonder Woman, Superman, Spider-Man. I mean, they've been around for you know fifty plus years. There has to be a certain degree of holes, if you will, so that they can continue. Oh, for sure. I just think it's really interesting when we think about dimensionality of characters, etc. But particularly going back to Star Wars for a minute, one of the things I think it's like I think so many characters, particularly those prequels, but uh, even characters like Boba Fett are kind of unrealized. We bring a lot to the table, and Star Wars fans, at least I was of that generation, where I would voraciously read and consume anything that had to do with Star Wars. So a lot of what I knew about those characters was from outside the movies. It was stuff that, it was it was comic books, or it was uh, an encyclopedia, or right. uh, some aspect of a toy. It was stuff that I brought to the movie as opposed to what was in the movie. And I think that's actually really interesting. And I think it's actually one of the great power, it, to me it remains a great power of that film. And going back to the initial idea of simplicity, I don't think they're incredibly complicated, these ideas. And I mean that in the best ways. It allows for a great, a, a global audience to imprint on them because they're fairly simple types. That's I think we need to bring Phil for like a second episode just on Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because exactly. so, I mean, Phil, the, the one thing that has not been simple is this episode, and thank you for that. Cause... So, <laughs> Phil, um, we're running over an hour, and that's totally okay. We usually like to have our show under an hour, but it's totally okay because this is a, a great conversation. Something that I really do want to ask you, and this is a little bit of a, of a left turn from everything we've been talking about. You said that you're a teacher as well. You teach. Yes. Okay. And one of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes here in the podcast is how sometimes we feel that today's youth, um, teenagers in particular, are a little bit deaf to... Uh, tone deaf to certain things going on in terms of history and and knowledge. I mean, we talked about in uh, I forgot what number episode it was. Yeah. How twenty one percent of millennials uh, didn't know what the Holocaust was. So I guess where I want to take this conversation to is as someone who is as creative as yourself and someone who is dealing, you know, is a teacher. What do you find today in today's young people in terms of social awareness and, you know, historical significance? God, that's a great question. So my the groups that I tend to teach, I teach 19 year old college students at School of Visual Arts. I teach life drawing. So we only get to talk a little bit about what's happening in the world. Um, I don't get to engage them that much, but I do try to engage them. And for many, many years, I taught at Cooper Hewitt. I would teach uh, design, I would mentor uh, young design students who were between, I think, 15 and 17 years old. The thing that struck me about the 15 and 17 year olds were how engaged they were 
in the world of design and how much they were thinking about design artists that came before them, how different sorts of art music impacted their design choices, and they were thinking about technology. That said, they were all competing. They were chosen by their schools to represent their schools, so they could very well have been like the special ones, right? Like right. or the advanced ones. But I was always blown away at how the stuff that would come out of their mouths, because I'm like, I haven't thought about Bauhaus school since art history in college, right? <laughs> like, or, oh my God, like, how did you know about that obscure 70s band? They were doing their research and I was always impressed by that. My college students over the years, I find um, have definitely changed. Many of them know, it's really interesting for me. It's like this, it's crazy. Some of them are completely ignorant about certain things, i.e. social issues, and or just choose not to engage them. Well, they know a shit ton about other things. So I don't think it's a matter of sort of intellect. I don't, I'm, I'm curious if it's interest. Uh, again, I'm dealing with art students, but I talk to them a lot about like, do they want to incorporate real life stories into their work? Some absolutely, mm. some not at all. I tend to wonder if part of what makes people want to draw comic books is also the sort of escape fantasy of it. I'm one of those people that likes to not underestimate young people. Um, I, and if there are gaps in their education, I can't help but wonder if that's not on us and who we're voting in and the monies that we're giving to schools to educate them, mm -hmm. right? Like, it can be argued, of course, that the internet distracts them or they're on, you know, Ridlin or, or whatever. But I also am thinking like, when I was 16, how much did I really know about the Holocaust, right? How much did I really, really know? Um, most of my interest in history and society, public policy, et cetera, certainly started in my 30s when I saw how it actively affected me. So I, I try not to, as much as I want young people to be engaged uh, and I want them to study for more than just the test, I'm just trying to, think back like what like how, how was I what were my expectations I liked history but it wasn't really till I got to college and had a really great history teacher that I started to understand why it was important and that was like a whole teaching method so I guess for me it, it's less about like oh those young millennials or those young mm -hmm. people but like what are we teaching them well, I think you, you I make, think you I think our responsibilities in that become Quite large. You make a very good point that, you know, again, we've discussed here. Here in Florida, I, this is not the same in, in each yeah, state, correct. though, but here in Florida, um, kids at certain grades, like third grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, like ninth, then every X amount seniors, of grades, they have to, t they had to take a test called the FCAT. Now they changed the test. It's a different type of test. But basically, kids are pretty much prepared all year long for the test. It, because obviously if the kids do well, the school gets an A rating and that has right. to do with funding. So it's a whole domino effect of things that happened if the kids do well. So these kids are constantly being prepared for a test. I, I was shocked when I learned not too long ago that kids are no longer taught cursive writing in schools. Because right. that's at least, again, here in Florida. Uh, because, again, that's obviously not on the test. And as well, well it's also as not like, necessary nowadays with technology. I mean... Quote unquote. Right, but it's something that until very recently was such a staple of mm -hmm. education was calligraphy or cursive handwriting. Right. Um, and we've kind of made the joke of like, well, how are you going to have a signature now? 
Um, so yes, uh, we wonder if it's just that, and and you know the fact that kids, because they're constantly being prepared for a test, they're not presented thought-provoking material or or things that make them curious about history and significance. Well, I'm of I'm of the mind that. I think nowadays because we have so much information at our disposal in our in our pockets, I feel like the easier it is to get information, the less likely you are to retain it. Right. You know, they, I, they've I, done I'm a study a... about that. I actually think that science. I I want to say, of course, I'm throwing this out with no proof. Yeah, we'll, we'll footnote it later. But but yeah, but there was there was actually a study done. That we are less likely to retain information that we read if we think that we can recall it again via sort of a Google search and what that's done to our memories and why so many of us have poor memories for facts because our brains don't bother to retain them because we know we can get them later. Um, so we don't, we don't really need to memorize. Yeah. Um, and so I, something I'm actually personally interested in, and I, I have all these fantasies of sort of quitting comics and going back to college and just studying for the rest of my life is I'm very, very interested in the origins of human curiosity. And I was reading recently that, Considering that curiosity drives discovery of everything from, you know, how to cure cancer to how to, you know, make an iPad work to how do I draw a face, right? Like, right. you have to be curious about how to solve these problems. There have been very few studies done on the, on the sort of biological origins of curiosity in our brains. And I'm dying to know, like, what makes some people curious and other people complacent? Like, why do some yeah, people desperately need to know how something works and other people don't care at all? We were talking yesterday in a pre-interview about, like, I love to talk about most anything. Like, I can find some way to be interested in almost anything, but I have a barrier to organize sports, right? Like, it's just not my thing. And I, I'll find a way to be interested, but I find that it's, like, my blind spot. I'm just not particularly curious about them. And I'm, I want to know why. Like, how can I be interested in all these other things? But, like, this is not something that intrigues me. And so, yeah, I'm just really curious what fires our curiosity engines. Because when I see, like, my cousin's kids and you present them, they're at this age where I feel like their mom is doing such a good job that they're, they're kind of interested in everything and they seem to know everything. I can throw out a question and they're like, oh, no, it's this, this, this. Like, you know, of course, it's whatever 11 and 13-year-olds right. know. But they're not idiots, right? Like, they know a lot for their age and can recite it by memory. Part of that's, I think, again, really good parenting. Part of that's probably, I'm hoping it's good school. I don't know anything about their school system. But they seem like generally curious kids. And that curiosity is never, it's never squashed, right? Like, they're encouraged to be curious until it's dinner time and then... I think it's also that the time, you know, technology has grown so quick and it's become a part of our lives, you know, from your cell phone to your computer to your um, uh, iPad, you know, social media and all that, um, that what we consider intelligent today may not necessarily be what was considered intelligent even when we were in high school which was right. 20 years ago you know if in when we were in high school if you knew a lot about like history and world war ii and the civil war and all that or you were good in math you, you automatically got called oh wow you're so smart you're the smart kid right. and all that whereas today i think it's it may be gauged a little bit differently for 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 kids and for for young people it's it's there's different outlets because the world has changed very quickly um so maybe there's something to do with that I also think it has to do with, I mean, for me, like, 
I, I think so much of it has to do with problem solving, right? And I think this comes from being a storyteller, which is all about problem solving. But I, I tend to find the most smart people are the ones who are, who are good at, at that, right? They might not necessarily have instant recall of a particular fact, but they are good at so, like analyzing something and sort of breaking it apart and kind of rebuilding it. They're, they're, they're sort of, they can, that that to me suggests like a real kind of, that, that just might be cleverness. That might not be actual intellect, but I'm fascinated by it. it was su- super random, but I just happened to watch this thing, uh, a documentary called Paradise Lost on HBO. I don't know if you've heard about it, but no. it was a, it, it was a, it's, it was a documentary done in three parts over I think 15 years about a group, um, uh, three white guys who were tried and, and imprisoned for being part of a satanic cult because they were they, they were yes. accused of killing. They're, they're called the West Memphis Three. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 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 The West Memphis yeah, Three. Yeah. Okay, yes, 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 yes. yes. Right, right. That all these so, celebrities got involved to get them out of jail and all yes. that. Yes. And what was really interesting watching this is how, and this goes to the problem-solving point, right? It's like, I have no idea what really happened in that. I'm just, you know, I... I'm not obviously in that jury. I'm not in that courtroom. So I'm just going by what the the point of view of the documentary. But what was interesting was how problem solving, logic choice. Well, this couldn't happen because this couldn't happen. Was sort of out thrown out the door based on certain biases, which we know happens all the time. But it seems to me that sort of true intellect comes from that ability to sort of ask questions and get to the sort of root of a problem. This does not make sense. This therefore this we need to either figure out how this makes sense or we need another option. And it just struck me that for, for so many of those people in that town, that jury, there was not a lot of problem solving. There wasn't a lot of rational thinking. It was not a lot not of at all. Think- I, I yeah. saw, I was, I, I saw several of those documentaries and um, I, I, I'm somewhat versed on uh, what happened there. And aside from the major, major, um, catastrophic mistakes that the defense did uh, you know this was your typical case of groupthink mentality they got a jury right. that they knew was going to see these kids in a certain way and there was nothing they were going to bring in in terms of evidence that was going to see you know have them see it differently it was your classic thing your classic example of groupthink mentality those those kids were found guilty well before you know anybody Except even made an opening right. statement it, it, i right. mean and it's really they were in jail what like almost 20 years i think 17 years yeah. which is kind of yeah kind of extraordinary Anyway, that's that's kind of a weird left field. I just happened to finish watching it. I'm in crazy documentary mode right now, so I'm watching a, a bunch of stuff. But it just struck me watching that that nobody was asking questions, no. right? Nobody was, and nobody was encouraged to. I remember my mom. We we got we were talking about something political once, and I oh she was talking about evolution, and something she didn't buy about evolution. And I asked her why she thought that, and she burst out into tears. And she was, you know what? No one has ever asked me that. Like I've never, she had never been forced or even asked to articulate her ideas on something. So she was just walking around with this belief, and and I'm a terrible wife. Like, why do you think that way? And why? And I, I think it's because like, I'm interested in motivation. And and I know she was sort of assaulted by the constant questioning, but I, it struck me like, oh my gosh, she's never had to articulate this, what this is or where it comes from. And when she did, she realized the origins of her sort of belief and her prejudice and sort of then had to re-examine them. And that got really, you know, weird and scary and et cetera. But, but for me, what I, 
all that comes down to it's a very high-minded way of thinking like when it comes to young students what excites me about them are the ones who are willing to constantly question and examine and re-examine what it is they're doing what it is they're saying revisit things throw away things that are not useful to them reincorporate them when it is useful to them like that to me suggests a certain level of intellect that might not not might not again not be about listing certain facts it's not about regurgitating um, yeah right 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 that said i also do believe that there there's a real strength in being able to regurgitate facts or knowing those facts i'm actually really troubled with myself currently being an internet user how little i remember particularly when it comes to sort of pu- public policy uh who who's making what choices politically because i tend to be one of those people who believes that stuff matters and I'm constantly asked to recall things that I feel like are fuzzy in my brain. There's a lot of information out there, but I also think it's because I have not been good at doing the proper work. And I I regret that on some level. So, well, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of information out there, but that's actually, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do here is, you know, kind of corral that and, and get some interviews with people like yourself. And again, I mean, I know we, we could probably go on talking for like yeah. ever in a day. I mean, honestly, at this point, it's just like, actually, I was actually going to say, I don't think you're coming to any conventions in, in South Florida this year, right? I you're think I'm only doing two conventions. So I'm working on a quick plug. I'm working yeah. on this new Wonder Woman graphic novel for DC Comics. It's written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, who's probably best known for Bitch Planet and Captain Marvel. Actually, I think the, the Captain Marvel movie that's coming out... Yeah, it's based a lot uh, on that character. based on her, her mm-hmm. work. So I'm super excited about that. And, like, it's just so mind-blowing. So it's, it's kind of like this ultra-feminist perspective on the Wonder Woman origin. And what I love about it is that I don't think Wonder Woman's origin in comics has ever been told by a woman, except for maybe Trina Robbins in the 80s. But it's always interpreted by men. And so she is reinterpreting it. She's reinterpreting the role of the Greek goddesses, how the Greek gods are portrayed. There's a whole bunch of crazy stuff in this book. And I'm, I'm like, literally, like, it's mind-blowing because so much of it is just looking at something from a slightly different angle. I'm like, oh, of course. Of course. Like, no, uh, yes. Genius. Brilliant. Yeah, there's there's um, no such I, thing as original just, ideas, just a twist and, and bringing something new to it. Yeah, It's always just a twist, and it's a twist of perspective, which goes back to our larger conversation about identity, right? Like, the what's so wonderful about seeing identity properly represented in media are those little moments where you're like, somebody's had that experience. Like, that's experiential. Yeah. Like, that is a point of view based on experience in a particular body, right? Like, that's the coolest. And it's something I don't have, and I'm a sucker for it. I eat that shit up. So I love it. Um, I don't even know why I got on that tangent, except for to say, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, what, that's Wonder Woman Historia. Oh, Historia. Wonder Woman Historia. <laughs> yeah. It's Black Label, DC Comics. Um, but I'm just, I'm super excited again for it's. Awesome. it's uh, and when is that? When uh, is that due out? Suppose uh, a prox. Uh, they want it up by the end of the year. I am okay. nervous about that. Um, I was told it didn't have a tight deadline. I get very anxious around deadlines. I'm not good with them. I I'm very keen on teaching my students like do not do as I do, do as I say, uh, because I get incredible sort of anxiety and panic attacks and stuff like that. And so I just try to. Uh, I'm just approaching this, and like each page is going to be a work of art, and that's how it goes. And hopefully, it will be out by December, and if not, it'll be out. Probably January, February. Anyway, right. well, I'm really sure regardless cool. of, of when it comes out, it's going to look as beautiful as all of your art does. So, I, Phil, I think it, I think it will be really pretty. I, I I cannot wait to show some people some of the first like pieces because 
uh, Ramula Fajardo, who works in the Philippines, is coloring it, and it's just so mind-blowingly good. Um, and that's actually one of the cool things also about, I will wrap up because I know we're going over, about being in this industry. One of the really neat things about being in this industry, particularly in this day and age, is that I get to work with people literally from all over the world. Like, oh my God, sure. my co- like, and they each bring this kind of crazy perspective to this work and a real sort of love and passion for it. And that's actually kind of a wonderful, not kind of, it is a wonderful thing, uh, a real gift that I never would have expected even, you know, 20 years ago. And please, and when that work is out, you know, um, you know, please send us some pictures of it. And so, yeah. I mean, we'd love to post it on our Instagram page and our Twitter and all that for our followers to check out. But so something I wanted to uh, just touch upon, you know, now that we're wrapping up. So in each episode, Phil, we always end the oh, episode this yesterday. Sorry. with the last Coke of the Desert. And generally, um, Ish and I usually have a shout out to it could be something bad but generally we like to give a shout out to some somebody or something that's doing a good thing um and it's generally independent from whatever we talked about in the show but i think we both agree we want to give you the shout out so you you are our last coke of the desert because you have been (laughs) you have been absolutely amazing to talk to um i can't really tell you how much i've enjoyed this conversation you know he probably thought it was going to be like straight up comic book nerd talk and it and it totally went into unexpected venues that are you know he felt yeah, because like wow you, you never know what you're gonna get with a guest you know sometimes yeah. you ask people you know tell us what you do i write comic books and how did you get inspired from when i was a child you know it's like very hard to like pull things out of people sometimes in terms of conversation but it's just been such a delight and pleasure to speak to you and it's i i mean it's been enlightening so Thank you so, so much for coming on our little show and, and sharing your life and, you know, what you do and your thoughts. It's, it's, I can't thank you enough. Oh, again, like you give me a voice that I wouldn't have. So thank you. Our big thing here is we hope people, when they listen, that they listen, they laugh, and they learn, you know, because one of the things we, you know, the main reason why we wanted to do a podcast was dialogue and discourse and just hearing from different people, and and this has been awesome. Oh, my God. It's so great. Again, I just feel like I, I say this all the time in lectures, and I said at the beginning of the podcast, like, there's 7 billion people on the planet, and they all have... They all have a story to tell. God, it always chokes me up to say that. But any time that we are given a form to tell our stories, I think, uh, is a real opportunity. So I'm very, very grateful. And thank you for your time. No problem. Thank you for your time. You you got a December deadline going. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully, you know, when we we could have you in the future, have you back on the show. If if you do any conventions down here in South Florida, we would absolutely love to, you know, just meet up and, and do part two. That's yeah. why I brought up Historia. I, I'm actually cutting back on conventions just so I can work to get this thing out because so DC doesn't kill me. Um, <laughs> but I will probably start doing conventions, like uh, more conventions um, in 2019 to, to promote it. So I, if not before, I'd love to see you guys then. Awesome. Yeah. Or, Thank yeah. you so or much. If we're in New York, maybe we can you know, exactly. take you out for a drink. Exactly. So uh, I know where to go. Oh, I, I'm sure. <laughs> we can do that. So everybody, we, we hope you enjoyed this episode. It was, a, again, a delight having Phil. So as always, grab your patelito, your croqueta, your jupina, and thank you so much for listening to us, and have a great day. All right. um, bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.